it's great to see you this morning. This is an exciting day for us as a church. Uh, it is, right? Yeah. Just thinking about um, the excitement that I have over this day. One of it has to do with you. Part of it has to do with you and the fact that, like, um, for whatever reason, on this day, this seems to be the day that, that folks feel safe coming to church. And uh, folks who haven't been in church for a long time feel a renewed sense of, you know, it's Easter. We can go and we can be among visitors and it's safe. And, and on, on one hand, I'm so thankful for that. But, of course, on the other hand, I'm thinking, wow, what are we doing the rest of the year to make you think this isn't a safe place, you know? So I just want to welcome you and let you know that what we're doing today um, is what we do every Sunday. And, uh, and so we, are, we welcome you. We welcome you with your mess. Um, as you saw in the cardboard testimonies, we welcome you as you are. Um, this is the way Jesus receives us. And we want you to know we'd love for you to come back next week that we could walk through the year together through our messes. And uh, I want you to know that. So thankful for our visitors. But the second reason, and probably the most important reason uh, that I'm excited is because of what today uh, resembles and reflects and uh, signifies in our faith, the resurrection of Jesus. Because um, while we... We place a lot of merit in his death. We look upon the cross and its brutality. We see suffering. We see punishment that we deserve. It's in his resurrection that we find hope over our circumstances, right? And Jesus wasn't the first to die for somebody else. Many of you would die for somebody that you love, but the power is in the resurrection that gives us power over our circumstances, over sin, and over death. And I'm excited to celebrate that with you this morning. Uh, we're gonna be in... Exodus starting off, which is an Old Testament book. It's the second book in your Bible. And I'm going to encourage you to, uh, to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, um, we don't want you to feel odd about that. Um, if you've got a phone, you want to flip through an app, that's fine. We have Bibles under the chairs. If you don't own one, take that home with you. Just a free gift. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 6 in just a moment. And then we're going to end up at the resurrection. Um, but just a couple of things. Um, first of all, if you're a visitor, like for the first time, and you're kind of checking out what is Solid Rock about, um, we want you to know that Jesus, not just today, but every day, means a great deal to us. And as a church, if you wonder who we are, that is who we are. We are a people who have been commissioned to make a big deal about Jesus. And in the last few months, for folks who've been attending, we've been seeing a lot of exciting things happening. Um, not just the numbers growing, but like life tra transformation happening. The more we make of Jesus, the more he changes us from the inside out. And so um, I want you to know that, that we're excited about what he's doing. But more than that, we want your cardboard to be flipped today. That as you make much of Jesus in your own life, that you would begin to experience that life transformation that only he can do in you. Well, I was talking at the sunrise service this morning about how they say the darkest hour is just before the dawn. And, and while there's some merit to that statement, I don't think there was ever a darker moment before dawn than the resurrection Sunday. And by darkness, I don't just mean absent of light. What I mean is the absence of hope. You see, that those who returned to the grave to find Jesus had resurrected, they didn't come with that expectation. They came not dressed in pastels and, and ready to celebrate. They came in mourning. They came dressed in black. They came to put the final nail in the coffin. Just like in our culture today, we have a, a memorial service or a funeral for somebody. Then we go to the graveside, a second process, where we see the finality of death when the body is buried in the grave. This is what's going on on Sunday morning in Jesus' story. The ladies show up at the tomb to, take, to pay final respects, to literally finish their process of mourning and say goodbye to Jesus. And I love that in the darkest hour, 
is when his rescue takes place. And that's true for you today. I want you to know that. Well, that's going to lead us into a story of slavery. If you've been joining us on our Sunday mornings, you know that we're in a series where we're beginning to realize that God's uh, word has a story to it. And we're finding that all the little stories that are in the Bible are actually telling one big story. And the exciting part of that is that God has invited us into his story. And, in, and God wants to take your story and make it his story. And so this is true of the Israelite nation who is in uh, slavery. They're in this, this massive um, turmoil and suffering. They're in a period of time where hope, just when they thought it couldn't get dark enough, gets darker. And so this is where God chooses to rescue the Israelite nation. A couple of things we're beginning to see in, in God's story in the Bible. One, God makes a promise and then he keeps it. Okay, so it's this theme that's emerging. Not only does he make a promise and keep it, he continues to remind generation after generation of his promise. We see he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to make a great nation. I'm going to make for myself a kingdom, and I'm going to bless all other people through your descendants. And he made him a, a promise. But then he has a son named Isaac, and God speaks to Isaac and says, oh, yeah, I've made a promise to your father Abraham, and we're passing this promise on to you. Isaac, through your descendants, I'm going to build a great nation, a kingdom for myself, a people I call my own. I'm going to bless all their nations through them. And then Isaac has two twins, and through Jacob, God comes to Jacob and says, oh, yeah, I made a promise to your grandfather, to your father, I'm making it to you. We're going to see this pattern where God makes a promise and he, and he keeps it. And so Genesis ends in chapter 50 with the story of Joseph, four generations away from the original promise. And Joseph is there on his deathbed with his brothers and he says what? Guys, don't forget the promise. Don't forget the promise. Take it and share it with the people. Now that's incredibly important to God's story. Because see, now what's going to happen is the people of Israel, this great nation is now in slavery. Their hour is extremely dark. And I think it's incredibly important. Two things that I've noticed as I read back through the chapters this week. I counted how many times God called them as people, and I counted how many times God reminded them of the promise. So let me just share that with you. God restates his promise to the children of Israel in their hour of darkness by saying, I remember the covenant that I made with Abraham Isaac and Jacob. And he says this seven times while they're in slavery. That's important. He didn't just say the promise and walk away and leave them in darkness. In their darkness, he said, I have not forgotten. I remember what I told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob seven times. Twelve times in the midst of slavery, he called them his people. When I think about suffering and, and abuse in our circumstances, I think that um, there's, there's a certain sense of just oddity to the way that people will oftentimes return to suffering or return to abuse. And maybe you've seen this before play out in a marriage or a scenario. Um, we've seen it even in people groups. And we ask, why in the world would you go back to suffering, right? It's a question. Why would you, once you're out, why would you go back? There's a couple of things that I was thinking of this week. One, I think, and we'll see this in the Israelite nation, there's just a sense of being familiar. A sense of, at least I know what to expect. I think when we get to that hour where we've lost hope, and the last thing we want to do is take that risk and hope again, sometimes it's just more comforting just to step back and say, at least I know what to wake up to tomorrow. 
It's going to be brutal. It's going to be ugly. But I live through today, so I'll live through tomorrow. We find more comfort oftentimes in our circumstances than we do in a God who's calling us out of our circumstances. And there's a second part of that too, and I think it has to do with identity. I think for those, maybe even you here today, who've found that your season of suffering and hardship is long, eventually you begin to find an identity in that. You begin to think, that's who I am. And I think like the Israelite nation, there's a fear of having no identity at all, right? Over and above at least having an identity, even if it's abuse or suffering. And so it's so significant that God says, in the midst of their suffering, their identity crisis, forgetting who they are, that God says, you are my people. And it becomes a real intimate expression. In Exodus 4, um, it becomes so intimate, which brings up a second theme that we're seeing in the story. In Exodus 4, just want to read a verse 22 to you. This is God speaking to Moses, telling him what to say to Pharaoh. Okay, Moses, peon, is about to go toe-to-toe with the king of Egypt and say some pretty bold things. And here's what God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh about the people. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my what? Firstborn son. You see, God is not just pledging allegiance to a people group. He's saying, You are intimately mine. So intimate that he calls them his firstborn son. Verse 23 says, let my son go, talking about the whole nation. Let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, imagine being Moses right now, right? So there's a dictator. He's got a people in oppression. And one of the slaves comes to the dictator and says this. God says to let his people go. And if you refuse to let them go, this is what God says, behold, I will kill what? Your firstborn son. What a risky move for Moses. But we begin to see this theme emerge, don't we? Starting back with Abraham, right? His firstborn legitimate son was Isaac. What did God say? Abraham, take your son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. And we we observed this about four weeks ago and we went, what? What a crazy thing for God to ask to offer up your son to be crazy, right? I don't know how Abraham did it. We learn later from the book of Hebrews that Abraham believed in the resurrection. Like Abraham didn't know that God was going to step in. He just said, God asked me to do it, I'm doing it. And if Isaac dies, God will raise him from the dead. And God steps in and rescues at the last moment, right? He says, stop, stop, stop. Put your knife away. Put your knife away. Get your son off the altar. Behold, I've provided a ram to be sacrificed in his place. And so we see this theme of sacrifice of the firstborn son. The Israelite nation, early on in slavery, when Pharaoh was trying to make their affliction worse, you remember what he did from last last week? First of all, he gave them these chores. He said, go and you make brick. I mean, what a mundane job. Form brick, bake it, form piece of brick. It's just very mundane, very physical. But you know what? Pharaoh said, that's not enough. I'm going to add affliction to your existence. I'm ordering a decree that all your firstborn sons be killed. And we know from the story what what Pharaoh was scared of is this. God's promise to Abraham was being fulfilled. And the more he oppressed and afflicted, the bigger the nation got. And so he's like, I've got to take out the firstborn kids. 
And now we have God saying, Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you tell him to let my firstborn son go. And if he doesn't, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Which leads us into the New Testament. Where God says, I so love the world. You want to know what I was doing through Abraham? You want to know what I was doing in the Exodus? I was painting a picture of how I was going to rescue you. For I so love you that I'm going to send my son to rescue you. And he's going to be killed, slaughtered as a lamb on the cross for your sins. That in him, you'll find and you'll have hope. And we begin to say, wow, God has got a story here. And he's inviting us to participate in a story much bigger than ourselves. I want to move to Exodus 6 for just a minute. I want you to observe a few things about what's going on. So, just so we're all on the same page. God has called Moses, this really running for his life scared guy, not anything super spiritual about him, said, Moses, I need to use you for a minute. Speaks to a burning bush, it's kind of weird. Moses, go to the people and start kindling up hope. Tell them I hear, I see, I know what they're going through. Tell them that. And tell them I'm going to rescue them. I haven't forgotten my promise. So he does. And they, they begin to rekindle their hope, right? They begin to, well, maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. The problem wasn't that there wasn't a light in the tunnel. The problem is where they saw the end of the tunnel. They wanted God to rescue them on their turf, in their way. And God even told them, it's not going to unfold the way you want to unfold. Pharaoh's not going to respond well. He's not going to respond until I raise my mighty hand. So Moses, I'm going to use you to get his attention. Then I'm going to use my hand to deliver you. Well, the people, they're getting all excited, right? God's going to rescue us. He's heard our cry. He knows, and he's here, and... And then it doesn't go the way they want it to go. Pharaoh's response to Moses was, sounds like y'all have got a little bit too much time on your hands. Tell you what, instead of just making brick, now go gather, get up a little earlier, go gather all the supplies, and then come make the brick. And oh, by the way, you've got to make just as many. And so we see that darkness became darker, and hope began to dim until there was, for these people, seemingly no hope left. In Exodus 6, God says, but the Lord says to Moses, now, what a powerful word. Like, in your circumstances, for God to say, now. Doesn't that answer a big question in our hearts? How long, O Lord, will you forget me, as the psalmist said? How long must I dwell in this darkness? How long before the veil is lifted? And God says, now. So God says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out. Now, what we're beginning to learn in the story, whose mighty hand we're talking about here. Are we talking about Pharaoh's mighty hand? Are we talking about Moses' mighty hand? We're talking about God himself intimately rescuing his people. I love that. Right? I mean, for, a, for humanity, we tend to make much of people, right? We love heroes. And, and God chose not to work through Moses, the hero of the story. He says, Pharaoh's not going to let you go until I move Pharaoh. I love how God does this. Speaking, continuing in verse 6, he says, Say therefore to the people of the Israel, I'm the Lord. It's almost like he's reminding Moses, you're not the Lord. I'm the Lord, and I will bring you out from under your burdens. 
of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. You see how intimate God is in the rescue? God doesn't want to use me to rescue you, this band, this church. He's asked us to proclaim the message boldly and loudly, but I want you to understand, even if you come down and ask us to pray over you, we're inviting you to Jesus, not to us. He's the rescuer in the story, as we're about to see. Now, verse 9 of chapter 6, I'll just read it so we have some kind of idea of what's going on in their story. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they didn't listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They had given up on trusting God. And they were trusting in their circumstances. And while Pharaoh and Egypt were brutal, at least they knew what to expect and they knew who they were. Rather than trusting in God, they began to trust in their circumstances. Well, God, because he doesn't respond to our circumstances or our lack of faith or our lack of faithfulness or our lack of you just fill in the blank, he's, he's going he's gonna to do this anyway. See, I think we teach a false thing in the church when we say to people, if you'll get dressed up and wear the pastels, you know, if you'll um, show up and you'll, use, you'll quit cussing for a day and you'll look religious, like, that's what makes God happy. Now, nobody says that, but we, we inadvertently say that, don't we? Right, come dress like me and talk like me and Jesus will be happy with you. I mean, in the darkest hour for these people where there was no hope left, there was no faithfulness, like, this is when God steps in and says, now I get to be the rescuer. And I want to share that with you, especially if you're here today and you're like, Easter's the one time I come to church because it kind of feels safe. And like, I just want you to know that. Like, don't put your hope in the way you dress, you know, thinking that if you quit cussing for a day, God's going to love you. You know, don't buy into those lies. In the midst of this disobedience and faithlessness and darkness of hope, what does God say? You are my son. That's who you are. This gets reiterated. Um, Hosea 11.1, later on in the Old Testament, um, this is what Hosea says looking back at the Exodus. He says, when Israel was a child, you want to know what God's doing in the midst of your hardship and suffering? When Israel was a child, right, when my nation was just a child in slavery, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God is not a religious deity to be admired from a distance, God is a loving father who intimately wants to flip your cardboard today. He wants to change your identity today and say to you, that's no longer who you are. You're no longer defined by what happened to you as a child or what you've done as a teenager in college or the recklessness that you've lived. You're not defined by those things. Here, let me rewrite your story. And he wants to flip your identity today. He wants to call you his own. Say, you're mine. He wants to rescue you intimately. What happens from here is this. God tells Moses, go back to Pharaoh. And, uh, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell him, warn him about these plagues that are going to happen. Okay, ten of them. And he even tells him he's not going to respond until the very end. Okay, it's going to be some crazy things happening in the plagues. You should go back and read it. It's just mind-blowing what God does. And so all along, Pharaoh's not responding. His hard heart, I'm not letting these people go. I'm not letting them go. I am not letting them go. 
then finally comes the 10th plague, okay? The death of the firstborn. And, uh, and what happens is this. Remember what God said? You let my son go or your sons are going to die. Well, this is the plague. And so God speaks through Moses. He says, tell the people to go out and find a lamb, a spotless, just a, a little gentle, tender, innocent. Like the, the more innocent, the better. You go find a lamb. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to slaughter that lamb. slaughter the lamb and then what I want you to do is I want you to take the blood from that lamb and I don't want you to do this in secret I don't want you to do this in your back room I want you to go outside of your house and turn around and like look at the door and I want you to paint this blood across the doorposts the header of your door I want you to express outwardly this is who is on the inside and then tonight the angel of death is going to come through this and sweep through this land. And, and the angel of death is going to take the life of all the firstborn sons, except for those homes that have been painted by the blood of the lamb. He will pass over those homes. And this is what happened. I don't think we in our minds can grasp the awakening that morning of families the death of a child and once they begin to realize and talk to their neighbors this wasn't just my child it was like ours like it's this is a big deal and pharaoh's heart is shattered and he says let them go get your stuff and get out of here is literally what he says and so as the israelite people are gathering all their stuff and and their their you know what livestock and what little bit of possession they have and like is this real in that moment of like, like I don't want to get my hopes up again, right? Because at the last minute, Pharaoh could say, stop them. And they're gathering their stuff and like, like at just the right moment when we had given up hope. Where, where did this come from? And Pharaoh lets them go. But then God says to the people, because see, God is not a God who forgets his promises. He says to the people, I don't want you to forget my rescue. So here's what I want you to do. Every year, I want you to return to this place in your mind and in your heart. And I want you to celebrate your freedom from slavery with a meal together. This is what we have in historical Judaism as the Seder meal, the Passover meal. And so they would get all, collect all these supplies and they would get a lamb and roast the leg of the lamb. And they would get some water and put salt in it. They would get some bitter herbs and, and, and this matzah bread, this unleavened bread. It was like big wafers. They'd gather it all up every year and get together and say, remember what God did last year. Remember what God did two years ago. Remember what God did ten years ago. Remember what God did a hundred years ago. Year after year. And every time they would eat this piece of lamb, they would remember this innocent lamb that was slain and how God had told them to paint the blood over the house so he would pass over. And they would take this, the food and they would dip it in the salt water and as they would put it in their mouths, God would say, remember the tears you shed in slavery. We talked about that last week. What God does when you cry, he cries with you. He sees your tears to the point so intimately, he said, I don't want you to forget your tears. I'm not gonna forget them, I don't want you to forget. And that herb, that, that bitter Herb, I want you to put it in your mouth. And when the bitterness hits your palate, I want you to remember the bitterness of slavery, how you felt like it was never going to end, like the veil was never going to be lifted. I want you to remember that moment. And the bread, this unleavened bread that represented sinlessness, 
I want you to break the bread. I want you to pass it around and, and cups of wine, four cups of wine. I want you to drink these cups. And, and as you look into the deep red wine, I want you to remember the blood of the lamb that was spread. That bought your redemption, bought your freedom. And so year after year, around 1,500 years go by. Think about that. Around 1,500 Passover meals on Thursday night before the cross, Jesus sits down with his disciples to do what? To share the Passover meal. And it's such a, such a monumental moment in God's story. Because this is where Jesus says to us, this isn't your story. And so he sits down. We'll look in Mark chapter 14. Beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, every year they did this, his disciples said to him, Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? You know what prepare means? They had a ritual of preparing. It started with the slaughtering of the lamb. They didn't just run down to KFC and get some food. Like they participated beginning with this spotless lamb and sacrificing the lamb and like the whole deal. And they prepared it. And so Jesus steps into the upper room, but literally the Son of God is stepping into our moment, our suffering here. And here's what he says to his disciples about this Passover meal. I'm going to pick it up at verse 22. This is Mark 14, 22. As they were eating, so what's going on? They're passing around the elements. Salt water, the bitter herbs, are passing it all around. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread. Now this is incredibly significant. This isn't bread like we buy down at, at Walmart, soft bread that tears. This is bread that's stiff and hard like a cracker and it kind of clicks it, when you break it. So it had, a, it had just kind of a sense of realness to it, to it breaking. And so it says that as Jesus broke, he took the bread, after he blessed it, he did what? Broke it. And he said, guys, for 1,500 years, we've been breaking this bread. Take and eat. This is my body. Jesus is saying, the story, it's God's story. He's been telling this same story the whole time. The moment of rescue is about to come your way. And then he continues. And when he had taken the cup, more than likely it was the cup of redemption. He took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And then he said to them, so it's almost like he let them drink it first, right? Let, the, let it kind of sit on their palate, and they were thinking about what? They were thinking about the lamb, because that's what they're supposed to be thinking about. The doorpost, that's what they were thinking. And while they were thinking that, look at what he says. This is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant. When God was saying his promise to, you, to the people of Israel in captivity, right? He was talking about Jesus. He was saying, I'm going to rescue you. And I'm going to do it right now, right? 
I'm going to do it kind of figuratively, but I have a rescue mission coming that is going to bless all people, not just you. And Jesus says what? I'm here. It wasn't about a sheep. It was about me. I'm the spotless lamb. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Don't overlook that phrase. Jesus didn't just bleed on the cross because they were being mean to him. He literally bled on the cross. He, his, board was, his blood was poured out to pay our ransom. If you ever read through the Old Testament and you wonder about the harshness of how God responds to sin, like if you catch somebody in adultery, you kill them. It's like, whoa, oh, that's a big deal. Like, you know what God's saying to us? He's saying, sin is expensive. And he was looking forward to the cross and he was thinking about adultery and all those things. And he wasn't just saying, let's be mean to people. He was saying, it's going to cost something. It's going to cost my son dearly one day. You want to know what, how, how, I, how I, seriously I take sin? Sin leads to death. And ultimately through the Old Testament, through the law, he's looking forward and saying, what? It'll even cost my son his life. His blood will be poured out as a ransom for many. And then he says in verse 25, this beautiful expression of hope, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you new in my kingdom. I just read it that way. That's when we call it the Last Supper. Jesus is saying, it's not actually going to be the Last Supper. I'm looking forward to gathering all my children together one day in my presence, at my table, in my throne room, right? As near as, as a mom holding her baby, like I want you that close to me. We're going we're gonna to do this again. We're going to celebrate this redemption again one day. And he says to all those who would believe, you look forward to that. I'm reserving that for you. I want to look at just a few words from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. But to understand what we're about to hear from Isaiah, I want you to try to understand where he's at in the timeline. I think it's important. Isaiah is a prophet who comes way after the Exodus. And so when he talks about lambs being killed, he talks about um, you know, God rescuing, he's thinking partially backwards. Right? He's part of that people who have been celebrating year after year. Remember God rescues, remember God rescues, remember God rescues. And so he's thinking backwards in one hand. Like, let's don't lose hope. Remember how the people lost hope and God rescued, God's still going to rescue. But then his description of the cross is so vivid as he also has one hand or one foot in the future of God's final rescue through his son Jesus. And see, look how Isaiah connects the lamb to Jesus here. I'm not going to read it all. It's a beautiful passage commend you to read this, maybe on your own. Just verse four. The one foot thinking about God, bearing our griefs in the past and our suffering and slavery. He's thinking about Jesus bearing our griefs finally on the cross. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's kind of this outwardly. Your sin didn't just break God's heart, it broke his body. And you could see that on Jesus at the cross. You can see the bearing of our griefs and our sorrows. 
and yet we didn't respond well initially, did we? Right? I mean, we didn't respond well. We considered him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So when the soldier is mocking Jesus, going, where's your father now? Why am I? I mean, that's us. I mean, how we've mocked Jesus with our lives. Verse 5 says, but he was wounded. (laughs) Look at Jesus being wounded on the cross. He was wounded for a reason. What was that reason? Our transgressions. See how God's saying that? Sin is weighty. Sin is expensive. When you see my son dying on the cross, you'll know how expensive it is. He was wounded for our transgressions. These next descriptions imply weight. I don't know if you've ever like almost like been under like suffocation or it's the idea of being like at the bottom of the ocean just feeling weight. That's how God's heart is being described at the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray in turn. Who's supposed to be the sheep? We are. Israel didn't get that. You go butcher the lamb, right? It's supposed to be you, right? That was what we saw in Isaac. It was supposed to be Isaac. And God's saying, here, I'll provide the sacrifice. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned, each one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, though, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to what? The slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before it shears, or like a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, right, for the first time, when Jesus was launching his ministry and he sees Jesus coming, do you remember what he said? He said, here comes my cousin. Here comes a super religious rabbi. What did he say? Here comes the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. You see how God's telling one story? And I hope you see too how God wants to make his story your story. He's calling you to himself today. He's saying, now. Drop the lies. I love Madeline's testimony. I was believing these lies. And she flips it. God is saying that to us today. Drop those lies. I am not oppressed with religion. <laughs> Pastel colors. I, you know, I'm wearing it. I, I'm not impressed with all that mess. I'm calling the sick, the suffering, those who are heavy burdened, I'm calling them to my feet. I'm calling them to my, to my arms. I want to take those who, who identify with abuse or suffering or hopelessness or lack of faith, like, like John Grubbs. He was a Christian persecutor. I'm calling those people to myself, and I want to flip your story today. I'm not going to let you call yourself anything but my people. God wants to rescue you today. Praise his name.
So I want you to hear something, okay? If you decide not to come back to church, you know, until next Easter, I, I want you to hear something, okay? What Easter means for us and to us is, one, God has a bigger story. When Jesus died on the cross, though the world had lost hope, his father hadn't. His father knew the resurrection was coming, okay? I want you to hear that God sees your circumstances and, and, and whatever sense of hopelessness you're in right now, and he wants you to know, I see that. I see it. I do. And he wants to take from you all the lies that you bought into, religion, all the lies that you've been taught. He wants to take those things away and set them down, and he has he's something he wants to hand you in return. Okay? Here's what it is. He wants to hand you grace, forgiveness, mercy, love, and righteousness in a new identity. He wants to do that. And you don't even have to promise to come back next week for him to give it to you. And he's saying, listen, <laughs> come to me today. That's what the resurrection means to us. I want to pray for you, and if, if that's you today, um, and you're like, okay, what do I do next? That's a great question. That's what they asked in the church. What do I do next? Peter said, repent and be baptized, right? Turn to God. Turn away from your old identity. Turn to your new identity in Christ. And then, and then with baptism, you paint it for the world to see. That that's no longer who you are. You are new. Paul says what? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, so maybe we should just write that on our cardboard. I was dead in my trespasses. While we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. God wants to make you alive today. So I'm going to pray for you in a moment. And I'm going to encourage you that um, wherever you are, if you choose to stand and sing with us or stay seated, if you'd like to come down and kneel and pray, if you want to go to a prayer room, at the end of our services, we'll have our prayer partners down here at the front. And they're here. They want to pray with you and over you and for you. But the most important thing that you would hear today is that God is calling you himself. Okay? He's calling you. You can do it where you're at. By simply trusting in your own heart that he is the son of the living God and that he has died for your sins on the cross and rose from the grave to give you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the gospel. Now believe it. And God will flip your story today. Let me pray for you as the worship team comes back up. Father, thank you for being a God who can flip stories because we're sure good at messing them up. Thank you for being a God who can save us in our darkest hour because we are really good at giving up on you. Thank you for being a God who is near to us like a father to a child. Thank you for loving us in our sin. Thank you for crying with us in our weeping and mourning. Thank you for breaking with us in our brokenness. And thank you for being a safe place that we can come this morning and bringing the whole mess to you. Just handing the cardboard to you and saying, here, you write my story. Lord Jesus, that's what we want today. We want you to write our stories. We want to leave here today not just better, but different. We don't want to just leave here happy. We want to leave here transformed. So Lord Jesus, meet us now as we bring our lives to you, our message to you, and flip our stories in Jesus' powerful name.